0: On January 20th, 1920, the 18th Amendment to the US Constitution which banned the production, transport and sale of alcohol went into effect. Among the many Americans rejoicing at the passage of prohibition that evening was one Pauline Sabin. Sabin, a wealthy WASP socialite who was New York's first ever female member of the Republican National Committee, foresaw many positives to an alcohol-free society. Like many American women, Sabin viewed alcohol as a threat to the morality of her family, particularly her two young sons. And, in her own words, Sabin believed that a world without liquor would be a beautiful world. Quickly, however, Sabin and many others like her realised that such utopian hopes were misplaced. Prohibition, it seemed, was creating more problems than it solved. Looking around at the increased crime and disrespect for law and order in the country, Sabin came to the conclusion that Prohibition was actually creating a worse world for her sons as opposed to the beautiful world she had once imagined. By 1929, convinced of Prohibition's failure, Pauline Sabin formed and led the Women's Organisation for National Prohibition Reform, otherwise known as the WONPR, an organisation that quickly accrued over 1.5 million members and led the charge to repeal Prohibition. Women had played a crucial role in Prohibition's passage, and much to everyone's surprise, they would play an equally important role in its eventual repeal in 1933. Prohibition would throw up many such surprises throughout the 13 years that remained on the books, and many of its failures still hold important lessons for our society today. As such, on this episode of American History 2, we aim to answer the simple question, why did American Prohibition fail?
1: Hello and welcome to episode 24 of American History 2. I'm Malcolm Craig and I'm joined as always by Mark McClay. And in this episode we will be discussing the years between 1920 and 1933
0: when the United States went dry and banned the demon drink. Hello, Malcolm. Yeah, I'm really excited to be discussing Prohibition today. Uh, It was one of those topics I'd never really looked into until I was teaching a course on the 1920s this year. And I I think it was probably the aspect of it I most enjoyed and found most fascinating as I was delving into it. So it'll be great to do a podcast on it. Yeah, indeed. It's something we
1: both covered when teaching American history uh, in our survey course at the University of Edinburgh. So it's nice to be able to return to it. Something I've not kind of looked at for quite some time.
0: Yeah, but uh, I think, you know, we always say to students before they take on a project that they have to be aware of the, the methods Methodological biases and things that we have. And I think we need to acknowledge one bias before we do this. I think it's only fair to say, like, true to our nation's stereotype, we both enjoy a beer or three. Um, So if we sound at all derogatory towards prohibition, you probably know why. Um, And, you know, as we particularly enjoy celebrating when we get landmark uh, number of listens, I'm really hoping that someone listening to this episode on prohibition is what puts us over the 25,000 mark. So, before we get to Prohibition, uh, let's get into our
1: opening question, the regular slot here on American History 2. And this episode's offering comes from uh, the University of Oxford's Paddy Andelich, who incidentally will be joining us on this podcast in a couple of months' time uh, to discuss the US elections. Uh, and Paddy wants to know, what should the next amendment to the US Constitution be?
0: Yeah, well, first, a very nice and topical question, Paddy, given that... Uh... The Prohibition is both the 18th and then it's repealed the 20th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, I would have to say I I would install uh, an amendment that called for an independent electoral commission. And that might sound really dull, but I think it's just a bit of a joke that you have Republicans and Democrats get to run elections and design districts the way they want to have them. Um, it seems that the sort of system we have here where there's an independent body who sorts all that out, so there's no real murkiness behind it uh, would be the way forward. So getting rid of gerrymandering and so forth. Yeah, I don't like that gerrymander.
1: (laughs) uh, My amendment would be the repeal of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Uh, Get rid of that and replace it with an amendment that is more suited to uh, the modern era, an era where you can uh, walk into a classroom full of kids and with one gun shoot an entire classroom in a few seconds as opposed to when the Second Amendment was created it was muzzle-loading muskets with mm. the height of firearms technology. So I would repeal the Second Amendment and replace it with mu- something more suited to the modern era. Okay, okay. So that totally uncontroversial point <laughs> aside, uh, Prohibition. Uh, now, I'm quite keen to get stuck into how Prohibition unfolded, and there's many great stories that surround the era, but uh, I think it's, it's beneficial to start off with a sense of why the United States government bans alcohol,
0: taking a blanket ban on alcohol in the first place. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, as with all these things, there's, a, there's always a complex and meandering story behind it, but... Uh, I think it all sort of begins... You get the beginning of what is called the temperance movement, which isn't about banning alcohol outright, as Prohibition does. It's about limiting your intake, encouraging that you you drink less, perhaps even banning harder drinks. And one of the things that sort of happens in America where there is this tradition in communities, particularly working communities, of drinking quite a lot. But it's normally kind of lighter alcohol, like cider, that's only 2% or something, um, or even beer. But then... in the Sort of the mid-19th century, there's a shift to stronger alcohol and um, like hard liquor. And this creates a lot of problems in society. You know, you have a lot of workers coming home drunk. The, the nation even, you know, I, th- I think the do- there's a documentary on prohibition and it's an episode on this. is called A Nation of Drunkards" Cards, is one of the things that begin to be called. And this contributes to a loss of productivity as we move into the industrial age and the historian Michael Parry says, you know, a drunken shoemaker alone at his bench or a tipsy farmer um, behind his horse-drawn plough did not present the same danger to other employees or profits as an intoxicated worker on the assembly line. So in many ways, modernity um, is also an important factor here. Um, but There was definitely that America seemed, there was this perception, at least in America, that they had an alcohol problem, and one historian has called America at this time the Alcohol Republic. Hmm. And was there a sense that that women were disproportionately the victims through violence and so forth? Were they the victims of
1: demon rum, as it was sometimes referred
0: to? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's worth stating at this point, women have, uh, probably alongside their own uh, campaign for suffrage. Prohibition is the next issue that women have the biggest effect on in this era. Um, and one of the reasons is that alcohol um, often leads to increased amount of domestic violence, um, which is a doubly big problem when you have the conservative divorce laws that they had back then, where it was almost impossible to get divorced in certain certain states. I mean, for example, you had one woman uh, that in 1821 in Tennessee testified that her husband would whip her while he was drunk, he would hold a knife to her throat, that he'd brought prostitutes into the house, one of which he'd contracted venereal disease from, um, and he became so paranoid he wouldn't let her visit her friends or anything, and yet Tennessee turned around and said, no, you can't get divorced. That he is- sounds like a right charmer. Yes, indeed. Um, but also, not just the domestic violence aspect of it, because men were there always, al- almost always the main breadwinners back then, if your husband became an alcoholic... Uh, lost his job then that and your entire family went down because of alcohol. And finally as well, you have the the role of the saloon. Uh, the, the, the saloon at this time was seen was, was a place where men went to drink after work technically and uh, ten, it tended to the, 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 the perception of the saloon is very much it was sort of this place of where you know men could go and behave badly and where the only women that were allowed were prostitutes. Um, well it's not entirely always accurate Um, some historians have pointed out that you know the saloon was also a place where men would go to try and get jobs and everything, it was where they made contacts but the saloon um, very much becomes the the, the sort of the place of contempt for many, many women who embrace the temperance movement and the historian Kenneth Rose sort of calls this increased temperance movement a drama of sexual antagonism a critique directed at males so yeah women play a big role and what was the role
1: of uh, key figures within within first wave feminism you know thinking of uh, you know campaigners like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B Anthony, Amelia Bloomer what was their role in uh, the emerging temperance and prohibition movement Yeah well
0: in the I think it's in the mid 1850s or early early 1850s uh, Stanton and Anthony go to speak at a New York temperance meeting um, and but the all-male temperance society refuse uh, to let them speak so they just kind of run off and go well fine then and form their own uh, New York State's temperance society for for women um, but aside from the, the big names there's actually some big events that are, are sort of grassroots people rather than the, the people you would think of like your Stanton and Anthony's for example the Women's Crusade in 1873 it's quite a startling event here you have a case where Thousands of Ohio women take to the streets one night and uh, they all do it at the same time and they pray, they get down and pray in front of the saloons in the hopes of divine intervention uh, coming to eliminate alcohol from their communities. It's quite a starting event if you think about it. And... Uh, while divine intervention probably doesn't play a role, you have a th- you have thousands of saloons and higher clothes under this moral pressure um, that women have exerted on it. And women nationwide look at what happened in Ohio and go, oh, we can replicate that. And all of a sudden, from that Women's Crusade in 1873, you have the formation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1874, Um, which is the big sort of national organising body for women in the temperance movement going forward. Um, And you very much get this idea of home protection, um, which is the WCTU and others tell women, look, you should be for temperance because it helps protect your family. And there's very much this view in society that women are more moral than men, and therefore they should be expected to lead the morality of society. And as such, it's their job to be a temperance advocate. Um, and very much the, the WCTU kicks on from there forwards. I think though that we have to be careful in attributing prohibition as this lovely example of where women gained huge political influence and were able to affect change. It's also true that it's not until the anti-saloon League is formed in 1895 le- led by this um, the the driving figure of Wayne Wheeler who very much puts pressure on politicians and has more access to that male-dominated aspect of society um, where he's able to make it a wedge issue for politicians in, in some ways and sort of the same way that abortion has been in recent politics where and you can't really be a Republican while being pro-abortion, you can't really be a Democrat while being anti-abortion. Um, Wayne Wheeler does his best to sort of make that an issue for many politicians as well. But still, the WC2U do play an important role
1: so, what kind of people are attracted to the you know, to these causes and this cause in particular? Is it, along with many other kind of like you know social reforming movements that are around during the so called progressive era from the mid eighteen nineties onwards, is it predominantly or purely a middle
0: class phenomenon, or is it wider than that? Um. So, yeah, I mean, it is very much a sort of a, a wasp middle-class affair. For example, you have Frances Willard, who is head of the very charismatic head of the, the Women's Christians Temperance Union, asked Congress at one point, um, talking about her views on immigrants and the immigration law, she asked them to, quote, enact a stringent immigration law prohibiting an influx into our land of more of the scum of the old world, um, which is just a lovely sentiment. And... and but they do, the WCTU and others do try to get lower class and immigrant women on board, but they're largely ignored because when they come around their communities trying to get them to sign on to temperance or prohibition movements, uh, many the, the the immigrant women find these middle class, well-bred women patronizing towards them. And There's even attempts to get African American women on board, but again, they're largely unsuccessful. And also, another way why we can see why it's a middle and upper class affair is the fact when prohibition does actually pass, there is a loophole whereby wealthy people are able to stock up on alcohol in the months before the amendment takes effect um, and therefore consume it throughout the 1920s without you know breaking the law. Um, and Pauline Sabin was actually an example uh, of this. As she used to throw all these J. Gatsby's parties and everything.
1: So resurgent nativ- nativism seems to be a, a component of the anti-alcohol you know viewpoint in the you know recent immigrants such as Irish and Italians are bringing a damaging attitude towards drink to the to the United States. Now, on one hand, is that is it the case that the nativism forms, as you've alluded to, an important component of some of the driving forces behind prohibition, and is it just a massive coincidence that? The new immigrant groups who are so despised
0: seem to be predominantly Catholic. <laughs> no, it's not a massive coincidence. It's very much linked. I mean, I spoke last week, or last month's podcast about, birth, about the Birth of a Nation film, sort of symbolising that age of intolerance in the US between 1900 and 1930. Well, prohibition is definitely part of that battle. Um, it's sort of seen as a way of cleansing these working class communities um, in the nation's cities. The cities, which at this time are actually becoming increasingly populous and more powerful in American politics, um, and it's sort of a similar dynamic to what we discussed when we did the Scopes trial episodes. You know, if you look at uh, William Jennings Bryan, for example, he is a huge proponent of of prohibition, uh, whereas Clarence Darrow was an equal, equally you know, huge opponent of it. And I think Darrow once said, you know, I knew it was supported by all the forces that were hostile to human freedom. So this is very much just an extension of that battle. In saying that, however, there were people with genuine reasons to support this initiative. For example, Carrie Nation, who was one of the most radical prohibitionists, uh, who described herself as a bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus, barking at what he doesn't like. I mean, she had lost her husband who, di- her first husband, died from alcoholism. And, you know, while I joked about the fact that our bias at the beginning of this podcast, it's, of course, important to acknowledge that alcohol has destroyed countless lives. So
1: so temperance and prohibition movements have been around, I think, as, as you were saying, as relatively serious force since at least the mid-1850s. So, wh- I mean, why is it the case that in 1919, all of a sudden, they're able to achieve enough influence to pass an amendment to the US Constitution, something that's notoriously hard to achieve in certain respects, but suddenly they managed to get this amendment passed banning alcohol. How on earth does that happen?
0: Well, it only takes the, the small calamity of World War I. Um I mean, the the the, move, the the prohibition movement very much is like a marathon runner that's, that has a crazy sprint finish that sneaks up on... Um, the people they're trying to catch because many dries and uh, sorry wets as they were called people who didn't support prohibition they didn't think a prohibition amendment was going to happen and then all of a sudden did and people went oh my god how did that happen but World War One creates a lot of arguments for prohibition first of all booze is associated with German Americans because most of the big brewers your paps and everything you know they're German they're German Americans um, it's also it's enlisted men in the army are banned from having uh, alcohol for reasons that, you know, it seemed to damage their war service. It was also argued that you shouldn't be using up precious grain to make alcohol when you need it for the war effort. And also that men that are working in munitions factories and women actually during World War One shouldn't be able to drink when they're working, trying to produce as much for the war as possible. And, you know, just in general, war is a change agent. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that we also get the we get prohibition and then we get uh, women's suffrage within a matter of months of each other. And basically what happens with prohibition is it it quickly gathers this momentum and it sails through Congress in late 1919 and it's ratified by the required number of states by January. Um,
1: 56 states, is it? Yes, I, I believe so Yeah,
0: um, And only, I think New Jersey and Rhode Island reject it outright New Jersey eventually complies And only Rhode Island and Connecticut I knew there was a the reason I liked Rhode Island There you go um, But yeah, there's, there's these huge big wild celebrations um, Among the campaigners when it's passed uh, They have this big party um, Although I imagine it would have been a somewhat muted affair If it's a prohibition party Grape juice for all <laughs> Yeah um, where they have these big sort of celebrated speeches uh, uh, after after the passage of the amendment. And there's very much this assumption, especially among these campaigners, but probably among most people, that this is a constitutional amendment. They're pretty damn hard to get. The, there's never been a constitutional amendment that's been repealed before. So they now think that America was now and forevermore a dry country. And on Prohibition's passage, the WCTU declared that Quote, in the history of Christian civilization, it will rank with the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and the Emancipation Proclamation.
1: Big words. Big, big words indeed. So, by January 1920, we have the 18th Amendment to the Constitution is, is affirmed, and it declares production, transport, and sale of alcohol across the United States illegal. And I suppose it's important to point out at this point before we get further into the actual era of the 1920s and early 30s and prohibition that although you know the amendment made you know sale across the United States illegal there had been state laws and county laws and all that kind of thing yep. so there was a patchwork of dry states and dry counties and across the United States before the amendment comes in it's not just one big federal thing and suddenly it all happens definitely does, 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 the 17 states yeah. I think
0: had some form of dry laws
1: in, in place yep so this, I mean, it's always interesting. I find kind of like, you know, Prohibition, uh, you know, this kind of idea of kind of moral purity and moral actitude and all this kind of thing. You know, it's the interesting mirror to the idea of the Roaring Twenties, mm-hmm. you know, fictionalised Gatsby. Yeah. The, the urban New York, big city, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia experience, all that kind of thing. So this kind of like this moral standpoint. So we had a question from uh uh one of our listeners, Jerry Maguire, uh, he said, Was there a red scare atmosphere for booze with politicians falling over themselves to decry the demon drink? Referring there to the the, the first Red Scare that happens in America in nineteen nineteen, nineteen twenty, uh, you know, anti communist, anti socialist, anti anarchist, all that kind of thing, the Palmer
0: raids, all these kind of things. Was that
1: kind of atmosphere also there in terms of drink? Yeah,
0: I think to some extent, yeah. I mean, because they're all kind of tied together. There's all this, there's this nativist element to the Red Scare, and there's this nativist element to Prohibition. Um, I mean, for example, Prohibition is very much supported by our good friends, the Ku Klux Klan, um, who who are resurgent in the 1920s. Um, and now they don 't just hate African Americans; they hate lots of different types of Americans, and some of the ones and immigrants and Catholics are some of their main targets and obviously immigrants and Catholics tend to be the the ones that support repealing prohibition, whereas those in the kkk obviously support prohibition and the kkk have a major influence in politics of states like Indiana and Maine where they're able to oust people that are unfriendly or unable to bribe politicians. And also in uh, Pauline Sabin's Suffolk County, uh, where there was an estimated one seventh of the adult population was a member of the KKK. And I think, in terms of where we see prohibition and politics and nativism and all that come together most uh, presently, is in Al Smith's candidacy in 1928, where Al Smith, the governor of New York, a Catholic, wins the Democratic nomination. He's the first candidate, um, first national candidate to be a Catholic. Um, And he's also the first candidate that runs on the platform of being uh, out-and-out wet, being uh, against prohibition, saying he would repeal it. And in that campaign, you see a torrent of anti-Catholicism. You see even states that would always vote Democrat in the South voting for the Republican candidate, Herbert Hoover, because Al Smith was a Catholic. Um, And the Republican Assistant Attorney General at the time, Mabel walker Willibrand. The day after Smith gets the Democratic nomination, she sets up a whole load of raids on the speakeasies, the illegal bars that sprung up around New York as a way of embarrassing Smith and his position. And it tends to be in terms of politics in the 1920s that Republicans are generally in support of Prohibition and Democrats who had a lot of the immigrant vote with the exception of in the South were were, uh, in favour of repealing it. I wouldn't quite say you've quite got McCarthyist-esque Red Scare type things going on, but it's definitely an important issue. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about the background to it and
1: you know, we've covered some of the kind of the big issues regarding kind of like nativism and how how all this politics and everything ties into this. So what about how America and Americans experienced prohibition? Obviously a very, uh, very broad question, but can we think about it? Are there geographic differences in how Americans experience
0: Prohibition? Oh, yeah. I mean, to take us back to the Scopes trial episode, if you lived in Dayton, Tennessee, I imagine Prohibition went by. Nobody really drank that much. I'm sure the odd person in the town tried to break the law, tried to smuggle in some alcohol. But generally, you lived in a dry town. If you lived in New York City or Chicago or any one of the other sort of big major urban centres, Prohibition, you might well have drank more during Prohibition than you drank before then. I mean, it's quite interesting. There's an early drop in alcohol consumption um, after Prohibition passes, but this slowly begins to rise again throughout the rest of the decade. But in in these areas like New York City, like Chicago, you have the, the, the speakeasies, the blind pigs, You have home brewing, um, you have doctor's prescriptions. Doctors are still allowed to prescribe alcohol and they they make a small fortune out of it. And one of the things I take away from prohibition, and you hear all these stories how people got round a lot, is it is human ingenuity at its finest. Um, It it brings out the best in America. Yeah, well, a good old American Yankee ingenuity kind of thing, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I always, when I loved the anecdotes about uh, Prohibition, is that, you know, America was the biggest importer of cocktail shakers in the world during Prohibition.
1: (laughs) And I also like the fact that so many of the cocktails that we know and love today come from this era, because the alcohol was so bad, you have bathtub gin, and you have some really rock gut stuff, that cocktails, many cocktails are invented to disguise the awful flavour of the alcohol, Mm -hmm. which, you know, as someone who enjoys a cocktail now now and again, you know, I know we've occasionally enjoyed an espresso martini, <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that they come out of that thing. And, I mean, I suppose the kind of question of, kind of you know, geography, we often think of the big cities, you know, the major New York, Chicago, you know, the Roaring Twenties, Tommy Guns, Al Capone, and all that kind of thing. But there's there was a fascinating study by the historian Mary Murphy about Butte in Montana, the mining town there. And it's a really fascinating case study of the ways in which women interacted with with prohibition in this town and the way it broke down social and cultural boundaries you know prior to prohibition it was unacceptable for women to go to saloons because they were either seen as prostitutes at worst or loose women in air quotes at best Mm -hmm. but after uh, prohibition came about these completely break down with the speakeasies and the soft drink soda parlours and all that kind of thing you know dancing and you know restaurants that kind of are allegedly dry, but offer you highballs and all that kind of thing. And that is, I mean, for anyone that's interested in this, I think it's a, that's a really fascinating case study of what it does to to society and traditional gender roles and ideas about gender and everything.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a, it's interesting that you bring up the, you mentioned the Butte was a mining town, because I think that also it's not just geography, as you've said, it's class. Um, it very much. A lot of working class people saw this as an attempt by middle class and upper class America to impose their idea of being American on the working class communities. And I, I think there was many cases where you'd have mining towns that would completely do their best to ignore prohibition as well.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned that women had a a fairly substantial role in in the passing of prohibition. Uh, I'd like to turn uh, and we'll get on to thinking about some of the problems that happened with prohibition, but how important are they in in its repeal? Because you mentioned right at the very start in our introductory vignette that that Pauline Sabin was both an advocate for prohibition and then an advocate for prohibition to be repealed or at least reformed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So so what role do women
0: have to play in, in the reform or repeal of prohibition? Yeah, it's quite interesting because for a long time the sort of historiography on the 1920s suggested that women have a sort of declining political influence. Either they get the vote um, right at the end um, or right at the beginning of the decade, um, but then they don't really vote in huge numbers and therefore it's sort of assumed that they have a declining influence. They fail to pass an Equal Rights Amendment and everything. But Prohibition stands as an example of women's continued political influence, if not heightened uh, political influence. Um for example. But, you know, just,
1: I mean, so there's some really good work being done. Uh, I think we've, it's an article we've both used in teaching Sarah Alpern and Dale Baum's work on, on female voting patterns in the mm. 1920 presidential election. Yeah. And how they did all this really serious, number crunchy stuff about voting and actually kind of gave lie to the idea that, you know, that women didn't care about politics. They weren't involved. And it was, you know, it was their fault, allegedly, that for record low turnouts, yeah, in the in the election of, and it was absolutely not the case. And yeah. their their research work and their kind of like really hardcore number crunching history mm-hmm. has given lie to this idea that women were not participants in the democratic process.
0: Yeah, and I mean the the, the organisation that Pauline Sabin forms, the WNPR, um, which was formed in 1929, as a prime example of this. You know, it goes on to very quickly have over 1.5 million members, as I've already mentioned, and. It was very important because to for people who wanted to repeal prohibition, uh, it, women were seen as the main stumbling block. It was seen as women because of those ideas of home protection and all the other ideas I've already mentioned, where they were seen as always being, they would be the toughest nut to crack. But Pauline, so you been in the WNPR completely flipped this on its head. And here you have 1.5 million women not seeing, you know, the whole, they had the the previous catchphrase of lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. They're they're very much reversing that idea of women. And they actually grow to three times the size of the WCTU, which is still around at this point. Um, I mean, Evangeline Booth, great name. Of the, of the Salvation Army who was still in favour of keeping Prohibition, you know, says, repeal will return women to the bondage of beer and the humiliation of the old Saturday night. So there was very much those old arguments were still in play, but many women like Pauline Sabin uh, were rejecting them, were flipping the home protection argument on its head and saying that Prohibition is actually hurting their children. It's it's bringing them up to, in a society where there's rising crime, thanks to gangsters um, like Al Capone... And also just the disrespect for law and order um, that many, many people had, and even disrespect for the US Constitution, because obviously prohibition is part of the Constitution. So great, gangsters. right? let's finally get onto,
1: onto that aspect of it. I mean, you mentioned Al Capone and, you know, the role of kind of big organized crime, like the Torrio Capone gang, and it eventually just becomes Al Capone's gang, uh, is that why prohibition ultimately fails? Is because it allows organised crime to step into the breach that formerly been filled by legitimate companies and essentially make vast amounts of money? I mean, there's an argument to be made that it's prohibition that allows modern organised crime to flourish. And that's a problem that still affects the United States today mm-hmm. and has its roots in, to
0: a certain extent, in prohibition. So why does it ultimately fail? Yeah, so to deal with your point about the gangsters first, yes, that is that is an important reason. It makes petty criminals into having multi-million dollar empires. Um, you know, Al Capone is just one such um, person, but you've got guys like George Remus and... Um, even like the the sort of rival gang in the Chicago, the Obanians. Obanians, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's quite interesting because obviously many people view prohibition rightly as something that was brought in to push down the immigrant community. But one of the things that prohibition does is it makes millionaires out of these immigrant, like recent immigrants who are, are running many of these so legal Capone, um, Italian, Obanian, Irish. Yeah. Right, so, right so, so I mean, it's, it's be careful what you wish for type thing. But there's many reasons prohibition fails. I mean, one of them. Is a lack of government enforcement. Um, so, Herbert Hoover, who's around when prohibition is a, a, he calls it the noble experiment when it's passed. And he says that I think for this to be a success, we will need 250,000 prohibition officers. How many do you think th- there were at its peak in prohibition?
1: Well, I know exactly how many there were at, at its peak. Sorry, that was meant to be a kind of like, like, oh, isn't that amazing kind of thing. Mark, how many prohibition officers were there at the peak? There was 3,000. Is that all? Really? Yes, yes. That is still
0: quite a startling figure when you think about it for the entire United States. Yeah, but I think this is where you have to place it into the era. So Republicans dominate the 1920s. What are Republicans known for? Not wanting to spend government money, wanting a small government. And yet here you have established this big law which needs the government to be huge, which needs the government to spend a ton of money. Um, so you have this inherent contradiction in it. I mean, obviously, the US is a huge country. Um, and you get whiskey coming in from Canada in the north. You have Mexican tequila smuggled in from the south. And you have rum arriving um, from, in the, from the southeast in Cuba. And... In 1925, the Secretary of the Treasury admitted that he reckoned that of all the alcohol smuggled into America, they had only caught 5% of it. And if I'm, I'm going to say he's probably being optimistic when he's saying that. And, you know, you talked about the fact that some states were already dry. Well, many states, even the ones who approved um, prohibition by ratifying the amendment, didn't want to spend any money on enforcing it. And you have some states that even repeal their own enforcement laws, like in New York and Wisconsin. But aside from that, you've got many other reasons as well. Um, I mean, as well as that rise in crime, you've got corruption. You have people in government who are corrupt because, well, they enjoy booze. They have their own, there's, there's bootleggers that deliver to Congress. Um, you have the police, many of whom come from these immigrant communities. For example, much of the New York City police is Irish. They come out of these communities, which enjoy the drink, um, and therefore they don't want to enforce the law. And you've also got prohibition officers... I will warn you if you start pandering to stereotypes here. (laughs) You have the the prohibition officers who are paid a pitiful amount, and and they're easily bought off by people looking to smuggle in booze. Um, and, And aside from that, you've just got the fact that many people in the cities don't accept prohibition as the law of the land. You have many people die as a result of dodgy booze that they're drinking, such as booze that's wood poisoned, and some overly keen prohibition officers who shoot people on site without um thinking much. And you also have the inflexibility of those people who supported uh Prohibition. I mean Morris Maurice Shepherd, who was a senator um that was that was key to introducing Prohibition. He has a quote where he says on hearing that people are trying to repeal it. He said, There's as much chance of repealing the 18th Amendment as there is for a hummingbird to fly to Mars with the Washington Monument tied to its tail. And then uh, when Prohibition was repealed, Time Magazine said, Last week, hummingbird and Washington Monument were well on their way to Mars when Senator Shepard's own mammoth Texas became the 23rd consecutive state to plump for repeal.
1: Hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of fascinating. And it seems that the the, the major urban centres are the areas that are most problematic in terms of trying to enforce prohibition. And that's kind of interesting in that when it all starts out, there's kind of a tension between urban and rural, you know, the growing urban America and rural America. There's a lot of kind of like rural interests that are most supportive of prohibition. And, you know, in many ways they're kind of They've kind of got a point that the cities are the
0: ones that make it most difficult to actually enforce. uh, Yeah, I mean, on that point, it's quite interesting because one of the reasons that they really rushed through prohibition in 1919 is because there's a census due in 1920. And that census is going to show that the cities are now more populated than the rural Mm. areas and therefore require a different... Different congressional districts and everything that would have given the cities more power, so they rush it through because they know that's one of their last chances to do it. So yeah, there's very much this urban-rural divide is evident in prohibition. So I'd like to kind of like think
1: about the, the the legacies of of prohibition. You know what comes out of all this? You know, eventually, you know, mass repeal, 1933, all that business. But there's still a long-lasting, you know, legacy of that Prohibition era of the 1920s and early 1930s. Were there any, do you think, from a historical point of view, are there any successes that come out of Prohibition? It's all just massive failure.
0: <laughs> no, the, well, I mean, one thing, the death of the saloon. The saloon, which was seen as sort of this this hub of corruption and evil and where, you know, met, where women weren't allowed to drink. One of the things I think you've already mentioned that is the fact that Speakeasies and everything allow women and men to drink together, um, and prohibition pretty much gets rid of the saloon, which had stop that. Um, so that so you know, prohibition has that one success to point to, and there is some evidence that prohibition did lead to a drop in alcohol intake in the United States, but this is something that's that's debated. I mean, there was certainly a drop in alcoholism um, during that era, but. I don't know whether success, but you can still definitely see prohibition's legacy culturally. I mean, America still has twenty-one as the legal age where you can drink, and you know, we've had our own experiences of trying to get by American ID laws, even when we were in our late twenties and early Uh, thirties. Early, early, mid, mid to late thirties, I I think. I think you'll find. I was trying to be generous, kind (laughs) of. But yeah, I mean, how do you? How, how do you see it in terms of how it's been represented in, in culture and in film? See, I mean, that, I mean, that's one
1: of the interesting things. It's still very fertile ground. I mean, the success of uh, a series like Boardwalk Empire, which I think is a fantastic programme. I mean, you know, Steve Buscemi as Nookie Thompson and it is brilliant. Uh, and it's a really, really great series. And I think really, even if it's not historically accurate in everything, it really manages to grasp the feel and sense of the era Uh, and I think I really like Boardwalk Empire a film that I I enjoy but is one of the most popular representations of the Prohibition era is The Untouchables the Kevin Costner and Sean Connery and Robert De Niro film from 1987 I think it was Mm -hmm. and it's it's an entertaining movie but my Heavens, it is so unbelievably wrong in almost every (laughs) aspect of it. So, I mean, the main character, I mean, Elliot Ness, the famous leader of the Untouchables, the treasury agent who was, you know, great prohibition buster, all that kind of thing. It makes him appear this moral, saintly family man who kind of just goes out there. He brings down Capone along with his brave Untouchable. Rubbish. Utter rubbish. Ness was a philanderer. Uh, He enjoyed a drink himself. He was a relentless self-publicist. And he had very, very little to do with bringing down Capone. In the film, it makes it out that his untouchables are also doing the... Because Capone was got for tax evasion. Yeah, He wasn't done for murder or for breaking prohibition laws. He was done for tax yeah. evasion. And
0: which is absurd when we consider the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. massacre. And everything uh, which we haven't even touched upon. point. <laughs>
1: But but in that film, it, you know, it's made out that Ness and his men were the ones. That was a completely separate investigation, and Ness had nothing to do with that. Actually, he did. You know, he doesn't do that. Elliot Ness's story is actually quite the way his life works out. It's quite sad. He kind of he tries to play on his his fame from the Prohibition era, and kind of he ends up having a fairly unsatisfactory, unhappy life from from late from there on in but The Untouchables is an entertaining film but I think that is often it's a it's a touchstone for a lot of people this is what Prohibition is this is what happened and it's so relentlessly wrong and I've not even got on to Sean Connery's Irish accent yeah <laughs> which is just laughable uh, so yeah I mean pro- Prohibition and that era certainly has a a cultural cultural resonance, but like like many you know, the things,
0: Scarface as well, which yeah you know, yeah, a thing yeah to discuss, but yeah, yeah. But, uh,
1: but I think you know things like Boardwalk Empire offer a much better kind of overall you know
0: wide sweep kind of picture of it, and I think it it comes back to what you sort of said earlier. It's it, it's intriguing because it is that contradiction of the era. It is this bizarrely conservative law coming in in an era of great social change. Is this the Roaring Twenties versus Prohibition? I mean, you actually wonder whether you would get the Roaring Twenties if you didn't have Prohibition, because I think one of the things that you do by putting a law like Prohibition on the books is you make it forbidden fruit. Hmm. You you make you give something that young people, especially, God knows, love. You know, I remember the joy of loving to rebel when you were a young person. Like, so if the government tells you you can't do this, and yet. There is always ways to get alcohol if you're in a city. Then you're almost encouraging it. Like I said, alcohol intake goes up in the cities. So I wonder if you get the roaring twenties without prohibition. I'm I'm skeptical as as whether you would or not. Well, I mean, I I mean, one of the things that
1: makes the 1920s roar is organized crime. Yeah, you know they talk. I mean, this you you know the old kind of canard about kind of you know it's the Tommy gun, the Thompson submachine gun that made the 1920s roar. Mm-hmm. But that idea, I think, without without organised crime, without bootlegging and... Although bootlegging was a small part of breaking prohibition. Most of it was like stuff that was made in stills and houses and factories and all that kind yeah. of thing. Rum running was a, a small part of it. But, I, I mean, I think you're right. There's a certain sense that the... The kind of the flouting of, of federal yeah. and local law gives a free song to going to the speakeasies. Yeah. It makes it more exciting. When you've got jazz, when you've, yeah, you've got, no, you've got, you've got no. this new music coming up, you've got all these kind of thing, changes to ideas of of sexuality and gender roles and all that kind of thing. You're the rise of the kind of the urban flapper mm-hmm. stereotype and all that kind of thing is a these fascinating kind of like changes that are happening in America. And but to To say, oh, what would have happened without it? You're entering the world of counterfactual history. Oh, I I know you're not. Dangerous territory, dangerous territory. So as a final kind of like question, the long-term legacy of prohibition. Are there long-term legacies to prohibition? Definitely. I
0: mean, I think prohibition shows you that you you can't have government control people's behaviour if A, you know, a large part of the population don't actually agree with your decision and B the government don't go about enforcing that decision. Um, When neither of those aren't there, I think you have problems. You know, if we think about things that government can control, for example, like I don't murder people, you know, you've got pretty much all of the population are on board with it and government are very much willing to prepare to spend money to enforce that decision. Prohibition had neither of those aspects. And so I think in that sense, it was always always bound to fail. And you also have, I I think... Prohibition is is a lesson in the law of unintended consequences. I don't imagine that anyone of those people that were celebrating in that big ballroom when prohibition had been passed afterwards saw foresaw the rise in crime, the breakdown in respect for law and order that was to come in the nineteen twenties. They certainly never foresaw it driving the flapper, they never foresaw Al Capone. And and yeah, I, I just think it is definitely a lot a lesson in the law of unintended consequences. And it's it's quite interesting actually that one of the other things I didn't mention earlier in terms of one of the reasons prohibition fails is the fact that it it takes the Great Depression to sort of act as well. This might sound counterfactual as a sobering up moment for many people uh, where they realise that alcohol can create many jobs again. They can get the monies for tax back and all that kind of thing. And that's one of the the other driving forces to which means that one of FDR's first things that he does is he is he repeals. Um, the, the 20th Amendment. But Prohibition also acts as a lesson not learned. Um, I mean, in many ways, many of the problems that Prohibition faced have been faced ever since the war on drugs began um, in the, the early 1970s under Richard Nixon, but then accelerated in the 1980s. And it, it, it seems that if you had looked at Prohibition, you would have seen many of the same pitfalls. Um, that have befell the war on drugs Um, but most people chose to ignore that the war on
1: drugs is over drugs won as the the, the t-shirt says so and I think that's a topic uh, that maybe we could cover at some point in the future something Mm -hmm. over the next year is the war on drugs which would be an interesting follow up to looking at America's war on alcohol Definitely,
0: definitely. That sounds interesting.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. Uh, very, very interesting. Great to draw upon your recent teaching experiences and uh, and revisit a subject that we both taught taught mm-hmm. before a few a few years ago. Uh, so, thank you very much for that. Pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed that that discussion. Uh, we'll be back in one month's time uh, with a, a special guest con- guest contributor. So, thoroughly looking forward to that. So, uh, thank you, Mark. Cheers, Malcolm, and goodbye to all of you.